Now, for those who maybe have flown uh, on a plane overseas on the, for the school break, or maybe if you've flown on a plane in the past, I think the worst show to watch is Air Crash Investigations. Uh, you'll be fairly nervous uh, as a plane is rumbling through the tarmac and about to take off, and you, you don't want those mistakes shown on that small screen of yours to actually happen to you. It's uh, riveting to watch, though, in the safety and comfort of your living room. And I, I personally find it riveting. Hands up those who don't know what this show is about. I think most of you know. But it, it investigates and analyzes knee misses and, and air crashes. And what, what we learned, or what I've learned by watching that show over many, many episodes, is that air crashes and knee misses isn't a result of one catastrophic mistake. Uh, you learn by watching that that it's actually a series of little mistakes that get overlooked and ignored and they just get compounded one after the other until the inevitable happens. I mean, we, we are showing the end of what happens right at the start, so we know. And looking at uh, the book of Judges is a bit like that. There are a series of mistakes that we can pick up and we are not to ignore them, but Israel does. And right at the beginning of the introduction, we're going to be told that that's the ending that we can anticipate as well. There's a little bit of background to the uh, book of Judges for those of you who aren't familiar. Uh, the little map that's been inserted in your outlines is going to help you. And it's, it's important to have that background understanding in our minds as we go through this book. Now, that is a map when Joshua had come into the land, the promised land, of Canaan and given them the allotment of how that land was to be divided amongst the 12 tribes. You need to understand that just before, uh, when Judges begins, just before, it is Joshua who was the leader of the people of Israel who helped Israel conquer that land. And Joshua, of course, was the leader after Moses who brought the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt into this part of their world. Now, that's a high point because when you read the book of Judges, there is one series of victory of conquest one after the other. And it is, it is a faithfulness and obedience of the people of Israel that helps them to do that. That's a high point. The other side is, and it's also a high point, is the book of 1 Samuel. And the book of 1 Samuel anticipates the rise of a king, King David. And between these two high points, you get the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is a bit like the cesspit or what goes wrong in between these two high points. And so what we are going to analyze are the mistakes that the people of Israel has made one after the other. Now, a little bit about Canaan as well. When you read that word, Canaan is not just one people group. I want you to think like this. Before White Australia came into this great land of ours, do you know how many Aboriginal nations there, there were? It wasn't one, was it? Close to 500, right? Close to 500 different Aboriginal nations who spoke different languages as well and whose cultures were different. So when you hear the word Canaan, it's not one big block of land where everyone had the same culture and religion and people groups. It's actually a mixture of many different types of people as well. And you'll see that coming up because 
Israel, in their disobedience, God allows them to be overtaken and harassed by different groups of people as well. You might find later on, uh, the Midianites come through, the Philistines come through, and these are all different people groups as well. And they had different forms of government. Some were kings. Others were confederation of states and rulers that got together. Another thing to realize is, of course, the nature of religions that Canaanites had also, also really broad. But generally, there were two types that they, were, that they worshipped. One was the Baals. Baal simply means Lord, by the way. And it was a male fertility god associated with good crops, lots of animals if you're into pastoral stuff, as well as your children and your families to grow well. That was all associated with land and survival in that land. On the other side, of course, was a female character, the Asherah and the Asherahs, that they also worshipped. And so these two gods combined together, they were worshipping, created and gave a sense of wonder and an imagination for people living in Canaan to look in the land and also look up to the sky to think about and answer the enduring questions of human existence. And then Israel comes in. You can see the Dead Sea and just above that, Jericho. Joshua comes in by crossing that river, the Jordan River, and the first city that they encounter is Jericho, and that city is taken. And from that entry point, the whole land of Canaan opens up and is taken into possession. But we're not meant to see that that land has been conquered finally by the time we reach the book of Judges. When we come into that part of this history of the people of Israel, you look back from the standpoint of David and you need to realize why weren't they successful in the book of Joshua? Why didn't they conquer all at once? And the answer that we get as we read through the book of Judges is that because of the abandonment of God that followed the death of Joshua and the persistent disobedience in spite of all Yahweh's efforts to reclaim Israel from their disobedience. So let's look at our passage in a little, little bit more detail there. It's a lot of bit of background there, but it's important for us to know. And uh, I'll read chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. So here it is. After the death of Joshua, who was the leader, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And likewise, I will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. It's a fairly stock standard way of introducing a joining of battles in ancient times. You know, the brief statement about the battle being joined, mention of the outcome, the casualties suffered by the defeated side, and account of the death of an important person. That comes out a little bit in verse 6 and 7. It starts off really well, doesn't it? Who shall go up? And they inquire, they ask God. And God replies by saying, Judah is to go up. And Judah teams up with Simeon. And you can see in the map that it starts at the southern part 
of that land. And slowly as you move up through the chapters as well, they slowly progress up. So Simeon and Judah come up. They inquire of God. It's a good start. And everything seems to be going well initially. And when we see Judah going up first as well, it's not just a coincidence. It's actually put there deliberately. So why Judah going up first? Judah, if you remember, was one of the brothers of Jacob, or Jacob's son, sorry, and one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And Jacob, just before he dies in Egypt, says this about him in uh, Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. Uh, don't have to, just write it down if you like, if you want to follow it up. But Jacob, his father, says to jo uh, about Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nation's will is his. Judah goes up first because God is fulfilling that promise, that blessing all the way from Abraham that was passed down to Jacob and now being fulfilled in the land of Israel, that he is going to rule. And we get that being further fulfilled after the book of Judges, in the book of 1 Samuel, when David from the tribe of Judah becomes that king. Of course, we know that it is partially fulfilled because in that line of Judah, as we go down the history of Israel, we see it being completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who is a true son of Judah. And he does rule the world, rule the nations. But it starts here. So Judah is going up. And you can also see the great uh, teamwork going on because he asked Simeon to come and join him as well. So they work together in reminding one another of God's promises to Israel to conquer this land. And so together they work and they are faithful. And they're responding to God's faithfulness and his promises made a long time ago. The success, of course, of this venture comes up a bit later on in verse 17. Judah went with Simeon, his brother. They defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory and Ashkelon with its territory and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah and he took possession of the hill country. So there is God. They are them asking God and God being faithful and giving them the land. And there's a conquest. But in between that story of who goes up and the defeat of the Canaanites, there are little vignettes, if you like, little mini stories being told. One of them involves the story of Adoni Bezek, uh, the first Canaanite king that's defeated here. And that's also part of uh, another story about Caleb and his daughter receiving this land. And also another little mini story on top of that about this Kenite, the descendants of Jethro, the Midianite. What do these little big nets of stories tell us? Well, the story about Adoni Bezek first comes up in verses 4 to 7 that we read. That we read. 10,000 of the Canaanites are defeated. Adoni Bezek as a leader is also captured. His thumbs and his big toes are cut off and he's left to die in Jerusalem. That's the story that we get here. And we might think of that as, oh, 
what a cruel way to actually deform and disable a person. Cutting off their thumbs, cutting off their toes, it doesn't seem like, does it seem like a big deal? Like, it's probably better than being stabbed and killed, right? But it is a good way to actually humiliate the person and disable one completely. I, I tried to think about this uh, this morning and I thought, how important are my thumbs? I thought, I need my thumbs to drive and grab the wheel. I need my thumbs to pick up my phone. You need your thumbs for daily work. You don't realize it until you actually have those missing, I suppose. Those who know a lot more about physiology and about how fingers and hands work will know how important that is. I like running. I can't imagine my big toes being cut off. I think I'll be a bit unbalanced if I try to do that. But amongst all these stories as well, we go, that's rather cruel to do that to Adoni Bezik. And then I think in my mind, what about cruelty and violence in the book of Judges? And you'll see a lot of that as well in the coming chapters. You'll see this story, and that's bad. You'll see worse stories coming up as well. You see a lady driving a tent peg through a guy's skull, for example, in chapter 4. You'll see later on the story of Samson where he gets, gets his eyes gouged out. I won't tell you the end, the last one, because it's particularly horrific. Violence in the book of Judges, I think there is a discussion for that to happen in your growth groups because it's long and lengthy and it needs to be addressed because violence for Christians is abhorrent, but some people might say, oh, there's this violence, does it give us the right, give us, give Christians the right to actually enact violently as well towards other people? And it sits here a bit uncomfortably for many Christians, and it should. But that's uh, for other talks as well down the line, I think. Uh, but just for Adoni Bezek, what we're beginning to see in the violence here done to him is a retributive justice from God being enacted through the people of Israel. And it is retributive because that is what he deserved. There were 70 other rulers that Adoni Bezek had caught and done exactly that and humiliated them living off under his table as they were catching scraps of food from him. As Adoni Bezek had treated others, so God is now treating him justly. And the first ruler here, Adoni Bezek, is meant to be representative of all the other rulers of Canaan as well in their cruelty and barbarity. And in the plan of God in that part of their history, to say, this is what God is also going to do. He's going to clean up that act and wickedness. So more on the violence in the book of Judges, but I don't need Bezek, at least for us, can help us to see that it is actually a good thing that God does. Now, the second little uh, vignette story involves uh, the conquest of Kiriath Arba by Caleb, uh, his daughter there, Aksa being mentioned, an aspiring suitor, and the Kenites, the Midianites, uh, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, in verses 11 to 16. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debi. The name Debi was formerly Kiriath Sephar. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sephar and captures it, I will give Aksa my daughter for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. 
and he gave him Aksa, his daughter, for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask for her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Give me a blessing, since you have sent me in the land of Negev. Give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenites, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad, and they went and settled with the people. The second little big net over here, uh, we are introduced to Caleb. Now, Caleb and Othniel, uh, as well as uh, the descendants of Kenite, we will meet them later on in chapter 3 and 4. So as a way of introducing what those characters, they don't just suddenly appear in the book of Judges, this is where it starts. But there are some really interesting questions in that little vignette as well. Uh, the first is Othniel that comes up, or Caleb, by the way, is uh, Joshua's best friend. So he's a well-known character. Uh, and what's also, what's also should highlight for us is that a woman's name is being mentioned in the Bible. Now, during a particularly patriarchal period in history of Israel in the ancient world, that a woman's name is even mentioned over here is rather astounding. And what other thing you'll see in the book of Judges is that women's names get mentioned again and again and again. Right? That's particular to the book of Judges. What we see here is God being generous in fulfilling his promises. We see uh, Caleb asking, who's going to take over this city? And Othniel puts up his hand, his nephew. I'm going to do it, and victory is given in that. The land of Negev is down to the south in the wilderness of Zin, by the way, if you're looking in the map. Plenty of land to go around. Aksa asks his father, please, Dad, God has blessed you. God has blessed this land. I trust in God's faithfulness. Can you give me some springs as well in the land that I should be given? Plenty of space. It's yours. The lower springs and the upper springs are all yours. What about the Kenites? Kenites are people that have come up with the people of Israel into the, palace, into, into the land of Canaan. There were Midianites formerly. Do you remember Jethro? You may not remember who Jethro is. Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. And they come up. They've been wandering in the desert. They come up and they settle in that part of the world in Canaan as well. They also trust in God's promises and faithfulness and say, we are going to attach ourselves to you. We're not Israelites, but we trust you and we trust in God's faithfulness that he's going to deliver his promises to you guys. And again, plenty of land over here, plenty of space. What's also rather interesting, though, is that both Caleb, Othniel, and the Kenites, and Aksa, they're not Jewish names. They're not from the tribes of Judah or from Simeon. They're outsiders. It's interesting, isn't it, that the outsiders get a mention and their names are mentioned clearly because they're important. And the people of Israel, they just mention their tribes up to this point. That's because that is the first clue, if you like, of the air crash that's about to happen. 
It's because Israel will show their disobedience in their unfaithfulness. And so we're up to point two. There are no Israelite names. It is the non-Israelites who are more faithful. Come with me to verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19. The Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses has said, and he drove out from it the three sons of Anak, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted at Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spy saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went into the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Verse 27 again, all the way to the end, says, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants in verse 27. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Verse 31, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh. It is one disaster after one another. It is unmistakable, as the repetition is made over here, that we are meant to pick up that Israel is being disobedient. Not just disobedient in not driving them out. The real heartache that, gets, that should be picked up is Israel making a covenant. So what we're meant to see is that not, they're, not, they're not just driving the people out, but it's because they were making a covenant with these people that they weren't driving them out. And it's told in that little story, isn't it, in verses 22 to 26, where this man is allowed, and his family is allowed to live. Sure, there's a conquest of Bethel, but that man goes out and creates his own city all over again, the city of Luz. And if you like, if, if the city of Luz represented all the things wrong with that part of the world, what God is against, that scene gets repeated again. It's not wiped out. And why? Because Israel made a covenant with them. The word covenant, of course, is quite important. It will come up again in chapter 2 when God indicts them for that. But let's see some of the reasons as to why Israel did not drive them out. Firstly, we, we come across them. It's because they had iron chariots. And Later on, you go and find out the Canaanites were forced to labor, cheap workforce, economic reasons. I mean, they just came into the land. Let's talk about fighting, though. Engaging in wars is risky. Your children might die. You might die. It's costly as well to organize an army, feed them and clothe them and train them. So... Rather than defeating them, let's just try to live at peace. Let's have a little bit of compromise in regards to that. It's a win-win. Well, what about the people that we've kind of like defeated? Yeah, let's subject them to slavery as well and forced labor. 
That makes a lot of economic sense. To just come into the land, I mean, they can build your houses, your palaces, your roads, your infrastructure, your schools, if you like, and it's going to be cheap. We don't have to use our own people, the Israelites. We'll use them instead. Uh, economically, rationally, that makes sense. That's something that I might do as well because uh, you go into a workplace, you know what we all say when we try to negotiate things? Is there a win-win situation that we can have here? Uh, what's the best thing that we can have? It's a win-win, isn't it? You're happy, I'm happy, and we can get on with our work and life together here. I think that's what they're doing as well. Israel compromises because they can see the benefits of living in this land and to see the benefits of God's faithfulness. Let's face it, I think it's a lame excuse to kind of say, firstly, they had iron chariots. Sure, they might feel like we're fighting a war with slingshots and they've got iron chariots. Um, But have they forgotten already? Joshua, as they brought them against the first city of Jericho, defeated the whole city that was like a a security vault. You couldn't break into that. And how did they defeat them? They walked around it, they shouted, and they blew trumpets, and the walls of the city fell down. God was fighting with them. And remember in verse 19 and verse 22, which says, The Lord was with Judah. And in verse 22, the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. God was with them. They didn't need to feed these chariots. God could defeat them. By the way, it's the last time where it says in the book of, Joseph, uh, in the book of Judges, where it says, the Lord was with them. God abandons them from now on. Did you notice that? As they did not drive out the inhabitants, as they made covenants with them, God is no longer with them. That's another small clue that things are going to go wrong. So what did God instruct Israel to do? Earlier on, much earlier on, in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Come with me, actually. Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is what Israel was instructed to do. Chapter 7, verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1 to 6. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than yourself, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will destroy you quickly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall break down the altars, dash them to pieces, and dash in pieces the pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. Because they are to be holy to God, separate and special. And in doing so, they were to completely destroy these people and their gods. And the reason is given in there as well. God actually knew them better than they knew themselves. 
it was actually for their good. That if they didn't carry out this command, they would soon forget this command and soon forget about God also and worship these other gods. I think that was a point in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 25. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 25, when he ends by saying, The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Lest we be ensnared also. It's an interesting word, isn't it? We get captured by glittery, shiny things that these idols epitomized and symbolized. What have we been promised? Haven't we been promised the biggest, best thing ever in Jesus and his death and resurrection for us? Has that picture of heaven in Revelation captured your imagination as to what it would be like and impact the way you live today? In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes uh, in this way about what we have. Chapter 2, verse 14. He himself is our peace who has, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commands expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And in verse 22, we're reminded that we are a part of God's temple where God lives in us. Those are tremendous promises. I don't know if those things capture your imagination and your heart as to how we should live today and see the great mercy and joy that can be found in Christ and all that he has achieved for us. But we can be ensnared by those glittery, other shiny silver and gold. We have many counterfeit gods, actually. We don't necessarily have to go and worship uh, many other gods outside uh, in their temples. John Calvin, I think, famously said in his institutes that we are an idol-making factory and it lies in our hearts. We don't need to go outside to worship these other gods and let me give you an example of money, by the way. The god of money, represented in many other religions as well. Uh, Plutus, by the way, is the Greek god of money, wealth. Uh, the Hindu goddess Lakshmi, I understand, is also the goddess of wealth. Other religions, uh, Kaishen, I think, is it, is it the god of wealth and money as well? I could be wrong. Correct me if I am. They, they all promise wealth, prosperity, security, a long life. But... Those gods that might be outside also reside in us. The great promise of capitalism, that if you work hard as a child even to get into the best possible positions, university courses, I suppose, and then graduate and get jobs that will pay you lots and lots of money. I, I commonly ask my you know, Asian students at school, what do you want to become when you finish school? And they often say, I want to get into law, medicine, all of those types you know, courses. Ask them why. And it's not because they're, they're going to enjoy it. I think they know that it's because they are going to be paid a lot of money. And they tell me that. I mean, teenagers, they're pretty honest, at, you know, about things like that. They don't hide it. They're not embarrassed by that. 
I go, okay, I want to get into the money. If I can't do that, I'll go into economics or commerce or something like that. Again, you know, positions where they're going to get paid a lot of money as quickly as possible. And, and what does that God of money demand of them? Their devotion, their total devotion, you should see them studying throughout the year and you should see them now as they do the HSC exams. They are completely devoted to their study and it's because they have that goal in mind. But it's total devotion, 100%, spending hours and hours for it. And we do it as well, I suppose, if, you, if you're at work. Uh, young graduates go out there and try to find out, yes, I want to become the CEO of the company because they offer the most amount of money in the company, as well as, as, well as the prestige. But that God of money is there dangling that carrot because if you, have, if you do this, if you give me everything that you have, your time, your, your resources, your family, I will give you security, I will give you holidays, I will give you experiences. And we fall for it. How does God respond to all this? This partial obedience, which I really think is disobedience. How does God respond to all this? Come with me to our... Uh, Judges chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. I'll try to finish off quickly here. Now, God's response to Israel and to us is this. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bokim and said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down the altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? This is God addressing the people of Israel directly. Not through an intermediary. Here is the messenger of God, the angel of God, speaking to the people of Israel. I have been faithful to my covenant. Why have you been faithless in your covenant with me? What is this you have done? What is this you have done in your disobedience? I guess we can ask ourselves of this as well, if we have strayed away from being faithful to God. Can we hear God speaking to us by his spirit? What is it that you have done? Now, Israel responds positively over here. In verse 4, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bokim, which means weeping, and a sacrifice there to the Lord. A positive finish to our first part of the introduction. Part 2 is next week, by the way. But there is weeping, there is remorse, contrition shown, saying really sorry to God and sacrificing, offering up an animal as a show of how sorry they are. But as we see, as we will see next week, that doesn't last very long at all. In fact, they really forget about it quickly. Let me finish by talking about hard and soft hearts then. Because it is really worth asking the same question to us as God speaks to us by his word. Have we been faithful? And if we haven't, 
What is this that you have done? It's a warning sign for us, isn't it, to reflect also carefully on how we are responding to God in a multitude of ways that can show either our obedience or disobedience. The warning is there all the time. We read in the book of Hebrews earlier on, take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. It's a warning, isn't there? But a great encouragement also. A great encouragement. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Today is today. Great you're here at church and online. And we're hearing God's word. We are being reminded to take God's warning seriously. We are being exhorted, encouraged here. But we also need to encourage one another tomorrow. Tomorrow is also today. And the day after that is also today. And the day after that is also today. Again, for seven days until we meet here again as one body of Christ to continue hearing and being exhorted by God's word so that none of us may be heartened by sin, but none of us may be hardened by the deceitfulness as well and to stand confident right to the end. I hope the book of Judges has been fantastic uh, and encouraging for you as we hear it.